quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from the New York Stock Exchange, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Turbocharged UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson says prepare for a no-deal exit in 99 days. No facing the music, Facebook earnings strong despite privacy scandals and a record fine and an electric shock. Tesla stock tumbles pre-market as the timeline to profitability extends again. It's Thursday. Let's make a move. Once again, to first move and not a moment too soon. There is a lot going on. Let's get to this. Let me show you the markets first. We've got uh, right now the Nasdaq and the S&P 500 kicking off the session at record highs, though. We could see the Nasdaq pair back a little bit here at the open. The Dow futures, though, boosted by some earnings, and we'll get to those too. I'm still amazed, ultimately, that we're at these levels, considering the news flow right now. Weakened earnings, falling survey data, trade risks, of course, and now a sweeping probe of the tech giants. That's putting a lot of pressure on J-Pal's shoulders ahead of next week. But let me walk you through some of my key observations over the last couple of days. Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin's comments yesterday that Amazon specifically has, quote, destroyed the retail industry. Wow. Also, firms that get the bulk of their sales from overseas say the conditions remain grim. Caterpillar's earnings missing badly. They lowered their full-year guidance, citing the trade wars. We saw shares falling some 4% yesterday. Motor giant Ford posting a loss in China. Chemical giant BASF warning profits could fall 30% this year. That's 30%. They, of course, based in Germany, where data this week showed factory activity plunging to its lowest level in seven years. The key question here is, what can the European Central Bank do here to help them? Well, we heard from Mario Draghi earlier today, sending the strongest signal yet that fresh rate cuts are coming here and that everything remains on the table here to help stimulate the economy, including returning to asset purchases. He says, quote, significant stimulus is needed. European stocks are uh, mostly higher on the news. German bonds, though, incredibly falling to fresh record lows. A rate cut in September, of course, will be pretty timely ahead of more Brexit-related fireworks, potentially, a la Boris Johnson. And that's where we kick off the drivers. The first full day of Boris Johnson. Well, what did it bring? The new British Prime Minister holding his first cabinet meeting after culling 17 ministers from Theresa May's government. A few hours ago, the Prime Minister addressed the Brexit stalemate in Parliament. Listen in. We will throw ourselves into these negotiations with the greatest energy and determination and in a spirit of friendship. And I hope that the EU will be equally ready and that they will rethink their current refusal to make any changes to the withdrawal agreement. 
If they do not, if they do not, we will of course have to leave the UK without an agreement under Article 50. The UK is better prepared for that situation than many believe. Nina Dos Santos joins us now. Nina, this is Theresa May's Brexit means Brexit on steroids, quite frankly. And, you know, when I look at the cabinet makeup here, if you want to send a message to the EU that we're not messing around, this is the way that you do it. Yeah, 17 out of 22 of Theresa May's top ministers were unceremoniously either sacked or uh, put in a position where they had to step down, knowing that they'd probably be sacked by an incoming uh, Prime Minister, Boris Johnson. He's made it very clear by giving the top three positions, the Home Secretary position, the Foreign Office and other key positions to pro-Brexiteers who backed him and in fact some of them stood next to him as he campaigned for leaving in the 2016 EU referendum. They have been given some of the most powerful positions in the land. He said that they're going to be trying to turbocharge the plan to get the country ready for potentially leaving the EU without a deal on that next deadline which is October the 31st which by the way is only 99 days away. Um, and he very was very keen to make sure that he also in Parliament when he was addressing uh, Parliament on both sides of the House during his first session there, his maiden speech in Prime Minister's Question Time, that he turned around theatrically to try and get those backbenchers of his own party that he may have alienated in this vicious cabinet reshuffle on his side, theatrically turning back and forth, not just to the opposition, but also to the backbenchers. What people are also uh, thinking that is probably going on here, Julio, uh, is that we may well be preparing ourselves for a general election in the autumn. Remember that Parliament actually breaks up for the summer recess tomorrow. So there isn't a huge amount of time for all these preparations to get underway. And also Brussels itself will be breaking up for summer as well. So although Boris Johnson has talked about turbocharging Brexit, uh, the real issue is that he's got his work cut out in a very short period of time during which a lot of people will be on their summer vacations. Julia? Absolutely. Nothing about the conditions here have changed, whether it's Parliament or the EU, quite frankly. So it's, yeah, turbocharged off on holiday at this stage. We shall see. Nina Dos Santos, thank you very much for that. All right, let's still take a look at Facebook right now because their shares are higher pre-market. They reported $17 billion worth of revenues for Q2. That was up 28%, I believe, quarter on quarter. Claire Sebastian joins us now. Claire, I mean, I was looking at their user numbers across all the key monetizable areas right now. They're solid and advertisers are going nowhere. So win-win. Absolutely, Julia. It's really interesting if you look at those user numbers. About 10% of Facebook's users are in the US and Canada, but they get about 48% of their advertising revenue from this region. So it was crucially important looking at those charts that those numbers are remaining stable uh, and even slightly growing, although, of course, most of the growth in users comes from emerging markets. Advertisers continue to be loyal just because of the dominance uh, of Facebook's position. Uh, Facebook and Google continue to corner more than 50 cents on the dollar of every uh, dollar spent in online advertising around the world. That is something that businesses simply can't overlook. And I think it's worth looking as well that Facebook isn't just tapping into this market, it's also creating it. Sheryl Sandberg said on the call, look, we taught businesses how to, uh, to advertise on mobile. Now we're teaching them how to shift into things like stories, those more uh, ephemeral uh, bits uh, of social networking. But one thing that they did say is that they expect to see a pronounced deceleration in revenue growth going into the fourth quarter of this year and into 2020. That's because of uh, ad targeting related headwinds, they called it things like GDPR and other regulations around the world, how that's affecting 
how browsers deal with privacy, how that's affecting how they deal with privacy with their own products. That caused a bit of volatility in the stock price after hours, although most analysts are seeing this uh, as just management being conservative this morning. Yeah, I remember when they first warned about that, margin squeezes and higher costs and things a year ago, and the stock plunged 20%, and now we're approaching, what, record highs again. What about antitrust? Because we did see the record FTC fine of $5 billion, a fresh FTC investigation, and, of course, the antitrust issues. What did they have to say on that point? So this was really the first thing they talked about on the call. Mark Zuckerberg went straight into this. He said, look, this is going to be uh, something that, that means fundamental changes to the way we do business. He said, we're making some major changes to how we build our services and run this company. He said, that's going to lead to higher costs. He said, it may lead to delays in how they roll out their products. Now, that doesn't tally uh, with some of the dissent that we've seen from the FTC. We know that in coming to this decision, this $5 billion settlement, they were divided down party lines. The Democrats on the committee didn't think that it went far enough, that, that $5 billion was you know, just about a third of the revenue that we saw from Facebook uh, in this quarter, not enough of a deterrent and didn't lead to fundamental changes in the way they do business in terms of, of ad targeting. But Facebook trying to make the opposite point, saying that it's going to lead to fundamental changes. Although one thing I thought was interesting from Mark Zuckerberg, he said uh, you know, that he wants regulation, he wants comprehensive regulation. Otherwise, he says uh, that frustration with the industry will continue to grow. Perhaps he's a little tired uh, of all this bad publicity. Julia. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's just go and uh, say that we're going to announce a, a, a cryptocurrency or something if you really hate bad publicity. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Skeptic here. Claire Sebastian, thank you so much for that. Talk about inviting criticism. Oh, speaking of that, Tesla stocks are down some 10% pre-market to reporting a much bigger loss than expected in the past quarter. They did, did deliver a record number of cars, which, of course, we knew previously. Paula Monica has been looking at the details of this for the path to profitability push back yet again. And a lot of details in here, I think, worrying analysts once again. Yeah, I think uh, the biggest problem right now, Julia, is that even though sales are strong, particularly for the Model 3, which is the quote-unquote cheaper of uh, you know cheapest of Tesla's available models, that's bringing down profit margins, and that's leading to these continued losses, more than a 400 million quarterly loss. I mean, the Model S and the Model X are expensive cars, so they're more profitable. So as Tesla goes more mainstream and tries to sell these Model 3s to more average middle-class consumers and not just the affluent on the coast that can really afford the Model S or the Model X, that's going to be, I think, a big problem going forward. So I don't know. Maybe Tesla needs its own cryptocurrency to get people to buy more of its cars. <laughs> Just change the name. Don't even bother doing any of the work. Just change the name. That used to help. Um, Paul, there's so many things I could question or ask you about this. Obviously, they're trying to use all methods they can to cut costs here. And, and that did filter through. But simply the cost of producing these cars is high. One of the things for me was how low the R&D costs are for a company that's talking about going to autonomous vehicle technology, is promising all sorts of big things over in China as well. That was worrying for me. But one of them was what Elon Musk had on the call about actually trying to reduce service costs by telling people how to switch their cars on. Wow. Yeah, there are a couple of things, a lot there, uh, Julia. It, Musk being a little glib, talking about how some people were having trouble turning the car on. Uh, you know, I, I think he was obviously saying that in jest. I mean, you'd have to think that, you know, your more affluent uh, Tesla consumer is not sitting there really struggling that much with uh, things of that basic of a nature. But it is a good point that 
you have more of these problems with the cars. You know, Consumer Reports has noted them as well. People have to bring them into the service centers, and that costs a lot of money. So if Tesla can do more uh, education to consumers and more downloads of updates via you know, um, you know, Wi-Fi and what have you, that's something that will lower costs as well. And this is going to be very important because Tesla's chief technology officer, J.B. Straubel, one of the co-founders with Musk, is also stepping down, which is another big problem because Tesla's had this well-known brain drain for some time. Yeah. And I think it does speak to you know, the question of, is Musk too difficult of a person to really deal with on a day-to-day -day basis? Yeah, and, and it is a good point, but even if you are struggling to turn your car on, it's still a phone call to the service centre. It's still a wasted 30 seconds or one minute or even perhaps even more that you could be helping someone with bigger problems. So I think it's right to tackle some of these issues, but the challenges remain. Paula, Monica, thank you so much for that. All right, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories that we're following around the world. Ukraine says it's detained a Russian tanker, which it claims was involved in a clash at sea last year. The incident last November led to the capture of 24 Ukrainian sailors. Fred Blyton is in Moscow for us. Fred, what else do we know? Because a suggestion from the Ukrainian security services that they simply recognize the ship. It's just been called something else. Yeah, that's exactly what they're saying, Julia. And we're still sort of gathering uh, the uh, evidence on this or the information on this. And it seems as though what the Ukrainians are saying is that this ship was in a port in western Ukraine, a port called Izmail, and was there, in fact, under a different name. However, they say that the local authorities there seem to have identified that ship and that the name had been changed and through the registration number found out that it was actually the ship that apparently had been involved in that incident uh, in last November. Now, what the Ukrainians are saying is that at this point in time that that ship has been detained as they say. They say very security sources or security services are on that ship and are searching that ship. And, uh, and they say what they want to do is they want to go to a local court and have that ship, as they put it, be arrested, which obviously means that that ship would be impounded because the Ukrainians are saying that that ship is essentially evidence because, of course, there's still several of their sailors detained. And, of course, they're in a standoff with Russia about that incident that took place last November. Now, as you can imagine, the Russians not at all happy with what was going on there. The Russian foreign ministry uh, coming out and saying as, uh, if this is a case of Russians being held hostage, uh, as they say, that the Russians would say that this is uh, of the most severe incidents and that uh, a response would be very quick and not long in coming and would be uh, very heavy and severe as well. So as you can see, sort of an escalation of that standoff seems to be brewing. Of course, we need to remind our viewers that that original incident that took place uh, was in last November. I think you're seeing some of the video there right now uh, on your screen where the Russian Coast Guard came and essentially detained three Ukrainian warships and 24 sailors that were on board those ships and those sailors remain in detention until today. Now, what the Ukrainians are saying is that this tanker was involved by essentially blocking the Strait of Kerch, which is a key waterway uh, in the Black Sea. And so therefore, they're saying that this ship is essentially evidence. One of the things, Julia, that has been going on over the past couple of months since Ukraine has had a new president, Vladimir Zelensky, there had been talks between himself and Vladimir Putin to try and get these sailors released. There was talk that apparently these negotiations had been making headway, but of course now it seems with this incident could be that all bets are off once again, Julia. Yeah, and now it perhaps means as well that the Ukrainians have detainees or, as the Russians are calling them, hostages to exchange. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Fred, great to have you with us. Thank you so much, uh, Fred Plagin there in Moscow Fours. Right, South Korean officials say two projectiles launched by Pyongyang early Thursday are a new type of short-range missile. 
They're calling it a military threat, one that risks undermining efforts to ease tensions on the Korean peninsula. There were celebrations on the streets of San Juan after Puerto Rico's governor announced he's stepping down, effective one week from tomorrow. Ricardo Rosello's homophobic and sexist messages in a group chat were made public, kicking off days of mass protests. Lawmakers have said they are prepared to begin impeachment proceeds. Europeans are suffering the summer's second extreme heat wave and the worst is yet to come. Britain and France are facing life-threatening temperatures on Thursday. Paris just hit a record 41 degrees Celsius. UK officials warn the heat could bring the train network to a grinding halt. American rapper ASAP Rocky will go on trial on Tuesday to face charges of assault. The musician has been detained in Sweden since July the 3rd, and Swedish authorities say he will remain there until his trial. All right, we're going to take a quick break here on First Move, but still to come, tech titans are in the Justice Department's crosshairs. A new antitrust probe could bite into fang dominance, or will it? And it's a bird, it's a plane, it's UPS. How the shipping company's deliveries will soar as drone operations take flight. That's all to come. Stay with CNN. Welcome back to First Move Live from the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, where it looks like we're giving back earlier pre-market gains here. The market's set to open slightly lower here. The Nasdaq and the S&P 500, of course, hitting fresh record highs yesterday. Some good earnings as well, but it is a mixed bag. 3M, one of the ones to watch, up some 4% pre-market after strong results this morning too. What about Europe as well? Mario Draghi saying significant stimulus is needed right now for Europe. Perhaps a rate cut here, new stimulus looking likely now in September. The European Central Bank saying, look, everything remains on the table here, including potential further going back, I should say, to asset purchases. Turkey also in focus, joining the rate-cutting bandwagon. No surprise there, but it was huge. Four and a quarter percentage point cut here. The first move, of course, for Turkey's new central bank governor. Like I say, no eyebrows raised there. Let's get some context here. Joining me now, Sam Stuval. He's a chief investment strategist at CFRA. Sam, a pleasure to have you with us. Let's start with the European Central Bank here. I mean, Mario Draghi saying this morning, all options are on the table. We're considering it. But given how low rates are right now, that the unemployment picture in Europe is still pretty weak, what more can stimulus do here? Well, I think what it can do really is try to boost investor confidence to say that the uh, the ECB is attempting to do something, not just sitting on the sidelines uh, expecting the markets to act on its own. So, as Draghi had said 10 years ago, uh, we're going to do whatever we can to make sure that this works. We'll cut rates further into negative territory and we'll buy assets. BlackRock said uh, that they should be buying equities this time around. Do you think that's where we're going to end up, where the European Central Bank is buying stocks, not just sovereign bonds? Well, I think nothing is off the table. Um, And when you think about how low international equities are, even European equities, uh, relative to where to the S&P 500, they're trading at levels that really have not been seen since the MSCI EFA was created in 1969. Wow. I mean, some would argue there's a reason for that, quite frankly. But I looked at your portfolio and you suggest putting 50% 
15% of the total portfolio in international equities. Are you recommending European stocks, select European stocks, or, or where around the world are you suggesting here? And is it hard to convince US-based investors, given the headline risk here, to invest outside the US? Yes, it's very hard to get US investors to invest overseas because the uh, international equities have underperformed domestic equities eight of the last 10 years. So investors are saying, well, wait a minute, you know, yeah, I appreciate that on a relative basis, prices look very, very attractive. Also on a relative price to earnings ratio, uh, the profitability perspective, things also look very appealing, but I'm not gonna be the first one to jump into the, the pool because <laughs> I might my portfolio might end up drowning. So uh, at CFRA, we cover about 1,500 stocks around the globe. We have equity analysts in Europe, in Asia, and yes, they do believe that there are some selected opportunities, uh, but you've got to be careful. It's cherry picking rather than just looking at an index in, in isolation. Right, well, I'm going to defend the rest of the world versus the United States because there's plenty of headline risk here too, quite frankly, whether it's trade headwinds. Um, the Mueller report yesterday was something else I think everybody was kind of keeping an eye on. Earnings, fine, they're coming in better than expected, but expectations were low. Why are we sitting at record highs? Is it all to do with Jay Powell and the Federal Reserve? I think it uh, has to do with the difference between headline news and bottom line news. Uh, that yes, the Mueller uh, situation and a lot of other things that are swirling around have really more to do with, with headlines, yeah. uh, politics, etc. But then the question comes down to how will it affect the bottom line? How will it affect corporate profits? Uh, people have been calling for very, very weak corporate earnings growth for quite some time. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me 29 times, shame on me, because it's now expected that this quarter will be the 30th, 30th. consecutive time in which the actual results have exceeded end of quarter estimates. Do we just need to fire all the analysts, quite frankly? <laughs> no, we have to congratulate the management for doing such a good job <laughs> managing Managing, managing. Good answer. Also, I noticed in your portfolio you have 15% in cash. Mm -hmm. Is that a lot relative to where you've been, say, in the past two years? And just explain that for me, because that's not earning any money, really. Well, it's not earning any money, uh, but the feeling is it keeps the powder dry. Uh, we are in a very challenging period, uh, time-wise, of the U.S. equity market. Historically, the July through October period uh, can be very, very volatile and also very weak. We had a, this third strongest year-to-date performance since the end of through the end of April, and. 80% of the time of those top five, the market was down July through October. Uh, so with equity valuations, you know, the profitability metrics, et cetera, looking pretty expensive, I think investors are saying, you know what, maybe I'm not going to be totally invested. I will save some on the sidelines for better prices ahead. Antitrust tech leadership. What do you make of the noise surrounding this? And do you think, and are you telling investors perhaps to rotate out of technology into some of the other beaten up sectors? Or are you saying, hang on in there, because if it's coming, it's not really going to have teeth and it's not coming for a long time? Hang on. Uh, you yeah. brought up the good point of saying it's just noise. This has been around for quite some time, yet why is it that tech is beating the broader market by a two to one margin over the last one month, 
three-month, six-month <laughs> basis when everybody has been aware of this already. So it's going to add to volatility, but we still believe that the growth lies with technology. So if we do see any pullback, it's a buying opportunity perhaps rather than anything else. Exactly. Um, bull markets don't die of old age, they die of fright. What they're most afraid of is recession. So keep your eye on economic growth. Uh, we're going to be getting the U.S. GDP report fairly soon, showing about a 1.8% rise, uh, pressure possibly from Boeing, uh, but then really the question is what kind of assessment about the future will come out. And in the interim, we'll just salute Jay Powell and his uh, rate cuts. Exactly. <laughs> Thank you so much for that. Sam Saval, the Chief Investment Strategist at CFRA. All right, we're counting down to the market open. A softer open expected, but still lots of news to get through. So uh, stay with First Move. We've got you covered. You're with CNN. Thursday's session, as you can see, we've got the S&P and the Nasdaq falling, easing back slightly here from record highs. The tech stocks, in fact, down the most big earnings on deck, of course, not only what we've been talking about with the likes of Tesla and Facebook, but Amazon, Intel and Alphabet all out later on today. Interesting observation here as well as we await the Q2 GDP numbers for the United States tomorrow. The Russell 2000, the smaller cap stocks now out of correction territory thanks to a one and a half percentage point gain yesterday. That's an encouraging sign, remember, because these guys have a far more significant exposure to the domestic, the U.S. economy here. All right, let me walk you through some of our global movers in the session as well. Ford under a bit of pressure here. The Q2 profits missing expectations. They were hurt by efforts to restructure over in Europe and South America. The full year outlook also missed, so easing the guidance here. And the automaker is cutting thousands of jobs this year as it plans to invest some $11 billion by 2022 in electric and hybrid vehicles, as we heard, of course, when we spoke to their CEO, what, a week and a half ago. Or it's Southwest, also in focus. The low-cost carrier says it's pulling out of Newark Liberty International Airport due to the Boeing 737 MAX delay. It says it does not plan to fly the jet now until next year. Southwest, of course, has more of those MAX jets than any other airline. So uh, that impact clearly being felt here. The Q2 revenues also missing estimates here. Now, Tesla, as we've also talked about already on the show, the electric car maker posting a $408 million loss in the second quarter, well below Wall Street's expectations here. However, it did reaffirm its full-year delivery guidance. Mm. It expects to return to profitability in the third quarter of the year. Can they make it, though? Dan Ives joins us now. He's Managing Director and Equity Analyst at Wedbush Securities. A pleasure to have you on the show, as always. You said that these numbers were the one to watch. Let's talk about that guidance. Is that guidance pie in the sky right now? Because that's looking like a real ask, given what we've seen here. Yeah, I mean, the two things. First, in terms of that unit guidance, that's an Everest-like uphill battle, in our opinion. And the bigger issue is really profitability because it comes down to can they get there in a profitable model? A record quarter, gross margins below 20%. This is a nightmare scenario for the bulls. 
And this is really, in many ways, I think a fundamental question around their business model. I feel like we're sounding a bit broken record-like on it being a nightmare scenario, though, for the Bulls here. I mean, to your point, what we've talked about over over past weeks is stripping back costs. And we did see an 8% quarter-on-quarter drop in costs, but producing these cars is increasingly more expensive, it seems, in terms of the numbers. And they're producing more Model 3s now at the expense of the higher margin cars. And you can see that drag on the margins here too. This is a problem. That is the underpinning of the issue and really the emotional bull bear story here. Because you had cars selling 70, 70, 75,000, now 35, 40. The margins on that are not enough. And now you're seeing the flow through the numbers. You know, bulls were popping champagne when we got those delivery numbers. Now it comes down to can they do it profitably? That was the issue. And also that unit guidance for the year, they should have ripped the Band-Aid off because I continue to believe that is going to be an extremely difficult number to hit. Interesting. Do you think he'd be rewarded now for perhaps being a bit more realistic? Because we did see those deliveries and everyone was like, wow, that's brilliant. And the snapshot of those deliveries is great, but not if you can't afford to produce them at that rate. That's the problem. And right now, Tesla and Musk are playing a poker game with the street. And I think going into the next few quarters, it's a fork in the road situation. That's why last night, bulls were hoping for more. You had in the deliveries, but the profitable nature of those, that's really going to be the issue. And that's going to be the debate here. And you look at the stock, that's going to get re-rated lower. And you've adjusted your price target here lower as a result of these numbers. Yeah, we've lowered it to 220. And I think, look, there could be another leg down if profitability gets pushed out further, then the stock could go below $200. Is there any price here where you go, you know what, this now looks like value? I think somewhere in that call, 160, 170 wow. range. Well, that's a long way down. No, but that, that's the level where it starts to become significantly attractive. Because you got to factor in not 360 to 400, more of a 330, 340 type number. That's where the model starts to kind of plateau. You know, one of the things that worried me was the fact that their R&D costs, their research and development costs were the lowest they've been for a year in this quarter. They've nowhere near spent what they said they were going to do in 2019. For a hugely innovative company, in the bull case, the guys that I speak to, the bulls here, still talk about the two, three, four, five-year horizon and how innovative this company is. But right now, it can't afford even to spend on the R&D. And the albatross around the neck is the debt. When you have $9 billion of net debt. That's the issue. And that's why walls start to cave in in terms of restrictions of what you can do. You got to lower CapEx. And for a company with Musk trying to balance all these initiatives, RoboTaxis, Giga3 in China and all others, that is... These are the growth opportunities. And unless he's David Copperfield, that's very difficult. (laughs) He might just be there. Who knows? We're going to stop talking about this because we could continue for the next half an hour. Never mind that. Um, Big Tech, you've been looking at this again because you've had a lot of clients saying to you, look, what are your thoughts here? Stephen Mnuchin, Treasury Secretary, yesterday saying that the Amazon had destroyed retail. Are we looking at any likelihood of antitrust fire for some of these big guys? Because in the end, you have to prove the consumer's been hurt. And I'm not sure you can do that for many well, of these. That's, that's really the issue. And, and some of that lived through and covered Microsoft through the antitrust. That's a great blueprint. There's going to be a big drum roll on both sides of the aisle, especially going to 2020 election. The DOJ definitely has some teeth in it in terms of what they're looking at. But I think the street, and you see it in the stocks, it's viewed as more background noise 
fundamentally, we think it's more of a finer business model tweak. And that's why despite all the skeptics and black clouds, Facebook, Amazon, all these fan names, we think a leg higher. You know, you mentioned a great point. I saw Democrats and Republicans lambasting the FTC here, saying, look, that $5 billion fine was peanuts, effectively, to Facebook. My understanding is it's Congress that gives the powers to regulators like the FTC. They need to beef up those powers. Law change is required. Is that coming? Well, and we don't see that coming, that Congress is going to be. And that's why right now, in the 202 area code, there's a long line of regulators waiting to sit down with Zuckerberg, Facebook, and, <laughs> and, his, and his software peers. Yeah. Yeah, he's laughing. Announcing cryptocurrencies and the like. Dan Ives, thank, thank you. you so much for that. Dan Ives, Managing Director and Equity Analyst at Wedbush Securities there. All right, we're going to take a quick break here on First Move. But coming up, are we in a genaissance? That's a fabulous word. Diageo is raising a glass to its profits. We'll speak to the CEO for all the details, including the answer to that question. Welcome back to First Move with a look at today's boardroom brief. Nissan is cutting more than 12,000 jobs after reporting a stunning 99% fall in quarterly profits. The Japanese carmaker warned last quarter that it was at, quote, rock bottom. It's now warning that things won't improve anytime soon despite a major cost-cutting program. The security issues surrounding Chinese firm Huawei are giving a boost to one of its main rivals. Nokia reported better-than-expected earnings on the back of strong sales of 5G equipment. It says customers are reconsidering who to buy equipment from because of security concerns. Shares in Nokia soared on the news. And the world's largest brewer has shrugged off the recent turmoil over its failed Asian IPO. Shares in AB InBev are trading higher after it reported better-than-expected results. Earlier this month, the company had to abandon plans to list its Asia business after weak investor demand. We're feeling very spirited today. Diageo also posted its earnings. Strong gin sales are boosting profits, but shares are a touch lower today. I have to make the point, though, they're up some 18% year-to-date so far. Ivan Menezes is the CEO of Diageo and joins us now. Ivan, always a pleasure to have you here on the show. I called it earlier a genaissance, genaissance. But as I look around all of your regions here, whether it's Asia, whether it's Africa, whether it's North America, solid growth here. You must be pleased. Talk us through it. Uh, yes, I am. We, we've had an excellent year. Uh, sales has grown 6.1%, profits 9, EPS 10, strong cash flow. But the quality of growth is what I'm uh, most happy about. As you mentioned, all our regions in growth, North America up 5, Africa up 7, Asia, Latin America up 9, Europe a strong 4. And our categories, we, you talked about gin. Gin is growing uh, fast, but it's a, still a relatively small category for us and for the overall industry. Uh, tequila is doing really well, growing very fast, particularly in the U.S. and Mexico. Whiskey is on trend everywhere in the world, and it's premiumizing nicely. So we had Johnny Walker up 7%, but Johnny Walker Blue Label growing double digit. Uh, India and China are doing well. Uh, both those markets have uh, quality uh, growth. Uh, so the business is uh, uh, doing well because we're, we're investing more behind marketing, and we've had a banner year on new product innovation, uh, and those investments are paying off. 
as we look to build a sustainable, consistent trend here. People around the world are drinking better, and we benefit from that. People around the world are looking for better brands, better products, better experiences, and that's what we're about, is being innovative in how we provide that uh, to consumers around the world. Talk to me about some of those innovations in particular, because your TV tie-ups have created all sorts of news, whether it's the White Walker, of course, a play on, on HBO's Game of Thrones, which I know um, was, was a real highlight, but also The Walking Dead as well, your Bourbon launch there. I mean, just engaging with the consumer and perhaps a younger consumer here in a, in a very different way. Yeah, so part, part of uh, what we... Uh, like to do in how we build our brands is uh, uh, make them relevant in the current cultural context. And so brands living in culture is a very important part of uh, our category. And uh, because you look at where our products play, they play in moments of socializing, of celebration, of relaxing. And our brands mean a lot to people. They, they choose their products based on the, how they feel about the brand. And in what you see with our Game of Thrones collaboration on Johnny Walker and on our range of malts, it's brought new consumers into Scotch whiskey. And it's also make, helps make Johnny Walker uh, cool. And uh, so we're, 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 we're getting uh, bolder and more innovative in how we we do this, but at its heart, you've got to be very careful. You, you can't overdo it. I mean, brands need to be authentic and true to what they stand for. And we've been very pleased with the Game of Thrones collaboration. It's worked really well for us around the world. I also want to talk to you about potential M&A here as well, because obviously we've been very focused on what we've seen from AB InBev and the, the IPO that they sort of tried and, and failed to do over in Asia, selling off the Australian business. I know you've been through a process over the last decade of sort of reshaping your offering and, as you called it, the premiumization of, of the brands that you're doing here. But where are you looking, whether it's geographically or in the, the sort of product mix here? Because to your point, I mean, gin is still only, what, 4% and the growth opportunities, 4% of your revenues and the growth opportunities here perhaps for that brand around the world is pretty huge. Yes, and we, we are fortunate in the, in the portfolio we have today it gives us a very good geographic footprint. Uh, you know, the developed markets of the US and Europe still have very good growth for premium spirits. And we're well positioned in Asia, Latin America, uh, Africa, uh, India, China. So we have a good starting position footprint. In terms of brands and categories, again, the Diageo portfolio has good completion, but we're always looking for interesting businesses to buy. Uh, I'd say the last most recent one we did was Casamigos Tequila, which we did a couple of years ago. Uh, and that acquisition is performing really well for us. Uh, Diageo has a strong balance sheet. We throw off uh, very good cash. And uh, we, we want to be building the brands of tomorrow, acquiring new interesting brands that have good long-term growth. And so you, you, we, will, we will stay active in the space of adding to our portfolio uh, for the right opportunities that come along. 
Yes, always looking for potential opportunities. So Ivan Menezes, great to have you on the show, as always, the CEO of Diageo there, and uh, solid results there. Congratulations again. All right, let's move on. UPS just posted record-breaking earnings too, but the U.S.-China trade war could mean further trouble ahead. My conversation with the CEO of UPS next. Welcome back to First Move. Trade talks between the United States and China are set to resume next week. The first time since their, let's call it a pause, back in May. It comes after the IMF warned this week, if you remember, that 70% of the world's economy is now slowing. Trade, a huge contributory factor. I spoke to the UPS CEO, David Abney, and he was saying to me that he wants to see more measurable progress towards a comprehensive agreement. When we sat down, I asked him about what he's seeing in China and what the overall declining export numbers are telling him. Exports are slowing, but if you're based in the U.S., you can judge China exports based on what's coming into or to the U.S. Right. And uh, so what we've seen, that has diminished. There is no doubt about that. It's still a pretty hefty clip, but it's less than it was. But we're seeing China to the rest of the world increase. So we're seeing trade flows change. And uh, in fact, we took a 747-8, our largest aircraft, that we were going to fly from China to the U.S. We're actually flying it from China to Europe now. It's just an example of how we can change our network when, uh, when you have these headwinds that come in. So a headwind always creates a tailwind somewhere else. So we're taking advantage of that tailwind. But what you're saying is actually China then is, is trading to a greater extent with other areas. So even as their, their business with the United States drops, they're actually substituting for other nations. They are. Now, they're not fully able to substitute because the decrease in the U.S. is more than the increase in the rest of the world. But they are doing a good job diversifying and they are offsetting some of that impact. This week, uh, the U.S. Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin said that the Justice Department is right to launch an antitrust probe into Amazon. He says the e-commerce giant has, quote, destroyed the retail industry across the United States and has no doubt limited competition. It's a fascinating comment. UPS is both an Amazon competitor, of course, and also a partner at times. So I asked Abney what he made of those comments. Anything that the governments across the world can do to, to take away barriers, to create trade agreements that will encourage these small and mid-sized businesses. We've talked about this before. Only 1% of U.S. small and mid-sized businesses export. We can encourage them through trade agreements and through logistics networks like UPS and, uh, and increase that number. If we do that, that will make them more competitive. It's quite fascinating to me because, I mean, Amazon has, what, 40% market share of the e-commerce market, but it's less than 5%, I believe, of the overall retail market. So I guess your point here is, um, as much as you can perhaps look at the power of some of the big retailers in the United States, what policies here is the government promoting to support smaller and medium-sized enterprises, particularly as far as digitization is concerned? Is that the point? That is absolutely the key. And there is so much that government in the U.S. and throughout can do. And we believe that the U.S.-Mexico-Canada trade agreement is a big step in that direction. 
the old NAFTA did not even address e-commerce. This has a particular chapter just on small and mid-sized companies, and they are the ones who will benefit. It's been ratified in Mexico. We want to see it ratified in uh, Canada and the U.S., and we do think that it's becoming a little more bipartisan, so we believe there's an opportunity to get that done. I mean, I'm sure you talk to the government all the time. I'm sure you talk to the, the Treasury Secretary. Do you think he gets it? Do you think he understands sort of the challenges, both for smaller employers and larger ones in the United States, from this perspective? you have confidence that he gets it? You know, I have had uh, several conversations with uh, Treasury Secretary Mnuchin, and I do believe that he does does not mean that we agree on everything. I've been <laughs> married for 42 years. We don't agree on everything either. But but, congratulations. Uh, but we do have good conversations back and forth between uh, the secretary and myself. He listens and uh, he lets me uh, give my opinion. And then, of course, he's going to make up his own mind. He's going to make his recommendations. But I do believe he understands global trade and what we need to do to enhance global trade and create jobs in the U.S., which he wants, we want, and the American public wants. 42 years. And it's up, up and away for UPS in the future. They're applying for a certification from the Federal Aviation Administration for drone operations. I asked David if he believes UPS can get that certification and what they'll then do with it and how fast. We do believe we can be the first or among the first to get this FAA Part 135 certification. We can do that. We can uh, duplicate what we do at WakeMed to clinics all across the country without having to have line of sight and without restricting the numbers. And then you can look at doing it across other industries too. So we think it is a very good opportunity it's not meant to replace the UPS uniform driver, but it's certainly meant in places where urgency is so important that we can offer our customers another level. David Anthony there, the CEO of UPS. All right, quick look at the markets. We are softer here, so moving away from those record highs hit yesterday for the S&P and the Nasdaq, of course, too. I'll be back on The Express with more, but for now, that's it for the show. You've been watching First Move. Time to go make yours. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.